Today we've got a smorgasbord, that's how you pronounce the word, of news from the annual UEG week, uh, this year virtual of course. Uh, we'll be an update on news in uh, artificial intelligence, GI bleeding, screening and surveillance and therapeutics of course. With me Dr Nick Burr from his office in Leeds. So the UEG week, my first virtual uh, conference, it, it was it was good. Um, I'd taken two days off to enjoy it uh, and uh, uh, sat down in front of the computer. I expected all the little figurines in that s static image to kind of start moving around once I paid my 175 euros, but that didn't happen. I thought my computer had frozen and then I realized, actually, I asked the, the, the only point of it was to kind of show you different things that you could do kind of access the industry stands the chat rooms or or do what i did go straight to the world of science of course where else is there once you got to the in, into the kind of the lecture hall so to speak you found that there were six simultaneous streams all could were displayed side by side so you you knew what was going on in the different streams and could swap and change if you if you wanted to kind of keep tabs on a, on a couple of uh, active sessions um, each session was done so that the couple of chairmen and the presenters uh, were, were all part of a group. They gave the presentations, we were pre-recorded by the way, and then the discussions afterwards uh, were alive, so to speak, when uh, it's possible to ask questions which were then uh, addressed once, uh, one after the other. Of course, FOMO, fear of missing out, pretty quickly stepped in and I found myself uh, skipping and jumping between sessions to try to get, get to the best bits and uh, which of course you, you learned nothing from that so in the end I, I actually developed the, the, the kind of the virtual skill to stay in the sessions and kind of understand what the what the what the topics was and then afterwards um, access the 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 database of sessions which I missed endoscopy constituted 10% of all presentations, which I thought was about right. It was the same as inflammatory bowel disease, nutrition, disease mechanism. The largest component was oncology, which I guess one can expect it overlaps between everything. The big ticket event was, of course, artificial intelligence. And it's, it was so big that uh, Mons Ahmed, my colleague from Birmingham, actually going to uh, give you a detailed update on this in a subsequent uh, uh, podcast. Now we have divided the topics up into uh, post-colonoscopy colorectal cancer. This is, of course, Nick Burr's particular area of expertise, so he will take the lead in that session. And uh, surveillance... Uh, therapeutics, GI bleeding, and new technologies. I remember the first time I uh, I heard about post-colonoscopy colorectal cancer. It was in a, one of the BSG meetings, and Roland Valori was presenting this new concept to a full room, and he was saying that uh, do you realize, guys, about eight percent of patients with colorectal cancers had a colonoscopy before. And I, I saw everyone in the room sitting up thinking, flipping heck, I didn't realize that something like one in 150 of my patients comes back within three years with a cancer. That's awful. But then towards the end of the presentation, I realized I got that figure completely the wrong way around. So I stuck my head up and, and I said to Roland, how often will a patient after one of my colonoscopies come back with a colorectal cancer? And he gave me a figure of one in 3,000. It was probably a generous figure, wasn't it? 
Yeah, well, uh, it was probably a generous figure for you, Bjorn, because we now know that risk is very different depending on your pretest probability of having colorectal cancer. So if you've taken off a large polyp, a patient is more likely to have cancer, they're more likely to have recurrence of cancer or another cancer. Uh, so that risk uh, will be higher. So the figures kind of been banded around though, is that if you're low risk, then you've, got, you've had a, a good colonoscopy, all the puddles have been drained, all the bubbles have been kind of removed. The true figure of, of someone who's not a bowel cancer screening colonoscopist of that patient having a, a cancer within three years is about? It's probably around two and a half thousand. Yeah, one in every two and a half thousand. And if, you, if you're having a bowel cancer screening colonoscopist doing it, it's slightly better. Yeah, so the rates in the bowel cancer screening programme, if you go back to the, the rates of a post-colonoscopy colorectal cancer in England, that was 3.6%. Uh, so that was very good. And it shows that uh, when all the ducks are lined up, when you've got good admin support, you've got highly trained colonoscopists, making sure that the bowel preparation is adequate and yeah the follow-up's correct you can get these rates very very low of course that's in a patient population that again is at a higher risk of colorectal cancer just due to the age range and the fact that they've had a positive stool-based blood test and for, for us in the uk this is quite this is all new us, isn't it we, we've known about post-colonoscopy colorectal cancer since about 2011 i think at the last UEG week, seems like the concept has actually gone through to elsewhere in the world. So we had data from Denmark, from Belgium, from Sweden. And how do we compare? Yeah, so it's since the World Endoscopy Organization paper came out in 2018 with standardized terminology and ways to calculate these rates and follow these patients up, it's really been taken on board. And as you said, England and a lot of our European neighbors have uh, now published studies and it's all quite similar and all the rates cluster around the same. So Sweden rates are coming down and around 6.1 in 2012 from Anna Forsberg's group. Elizabeth Macken in Belgium showed rates of 7.6%. The Danes have rates around 7.5% and those Brits for the last data set in 2013 around 6.8%. So we're all very similar. So that's the general population and everybody's getting better. The rates are coming down. And I guess if you see from the patient's point of view, this is what it's all about. Having a colonoscopy, having polyps removed, it doesn't actually matter that you've had polyps removed. They didn't cause any problems in the first place. The reason that you want them removed is to reduce the rate of cancer, basically. That's the bottom line. If you turn the question on its head, though, what is the things that I shouldn't do now? Looking at it as, as an outsider, I'm in the wrong business here. I, I shouldn't do... I shouldn't do polypectomies and stuff because my patients are at way higher risk of getting cancer in the future. They, they're clocking up polyps, big polyps, difficult polyps, that maybe polyps which could run the risk of being incompletely removed. And I do a lot of colonoscopies too. So in a year, I might do maybe up to a thousand colonoscopies and they're high risk patients. So I can expect to get a tap on my shoulder, maybe a couple of times a year. People say, do you realize you, you clocked up another post-colonoscopy correctal cancer, Dr. Rambuchen? 
<laughs> so I, people have been sitting up and it is making people sit a bit uncomfortably on their seat. But this is not a witch hunt. This is not... It's going to be a hunt though, isn't it? Because there's an audit coming up. Yeah, so there is an audit that's on the way next year, hopefully uh, mid next year, depending on what happens with uh, COVID, of course. But all hospitals in England will have their post-colonoscopy cancer cases sent back to them from the National Cancer Registry through NCRAS uh, linked to colonoscopy data from HES. So all the cases will be fed back to the individual units so people can uh, look into the cases themselves. plan, of course, is to find out any common themes, any common reasons, quality improvement targets and uh, measures that can be put in place to try and reduce the rates of these cancers. And it's going to be any way to publish this. And we're going to, going to be told that, oh, Leeds clocked up this many post-colonial mm-hmm. cancer. Doncaster clocked up this many. It's going to be any comparison. The idea is that data will be um, collected and analysed, but anonymised to then look for common themes. So that, yes, this is a learning process. This is a quality improvement process. The ultimate aim is to reduce death from colorectal cancer. If you can pick cancers up early, prevent post-colonoscopy cancer, that's a good thing. It's just trying to learn from everything and it to be a process to improve quality. And finally, in Leeds, we do probably six or seven thousand colonoscopies a year, or we, or we used to before before COVID. How many post-colonoscopy colorectal cancer will do you expect will clock up in a year? Again, it depends on each unit and the the risk of patients that you're doing. So if you've got a lot of inflammatory bowel disease, you've got a lot of big polyps, uh, such as in Leeds, the rates will be slightly higher, and it's going to vary a bit year on year, but probably ten to fifteen right. a year. Right, right, right. Well, thanks, Nick, for that update on post-colonoscopy colorectal cancer. And now to something entirely different. We're going to turn our attention to GI bleeding. We were reminded, by the way, in Abstract 1P155 of uh, of an earlier prospective study of the Ovesco clip called the STING trial published in Gastroenterology 2018, I think. Uh, to remind you, there were five centres in Germany, Switzerland and Hong Kong who recruited a total of 63 patients over a three-year period who had re-bled from a peptic ulcer. Now, half of these re-bleeders were treated with standard therapy and the other half were treated with the Ovesco clip. And uh, the Authors concluded that 14 out of 33 patients continued to bleed when their ulcer was treated with the, adre- with the adrenaline and more clips, uh, versus only 2 out of 33 patients who were randomized to the Ovesco arm. Now, I do have some concerns about this study. Uh, first of all, in Leeds, we published our experience on upper GI bleeding in 2016. We, we actually had a total of 48 recurrent peptic ulcer bleeds over a four-year period. So you would have expected these five centres to generate more than only 66 patients. In fact, I think you would have expected twice as many uh, patients to be, have been recruited into the study. Uh, and I th- secondly, I think that the author w- might, may have been a little bit concerned at the onset uh, when they were planning the study that some ulcers may not be suitable for the Ovesco clip because the initial protocol ex- actually excluded patients with endoscopic failure to reach the bleeding source. They removed that s- subsequently, but that was there in the initial uh, study protocol. Now, that not every patient 
were randomized into the study. It was also suggested by the fact that all endoscopic procedures in each center were done by one to two experienced endoscopists. Could it really be possible that two senior endoscopists were on call every other night for 24 hours uh, for three years continuously just to be available when a patient suffered a re-bleed? It seems implausible. Also concerned that the standard treatment in this arm wasn't what I would call standard therapy, uh, which is injection with adrenaline and then followed by heat. Instead, the standard therapy in this in this um, study was uh, uh, injection followed by clip. Only two patients overall received uh, uh, heat and adrenaline. And finally, the study was actually not independent. The principal author uh, received payment by Ovesco for consulting lectures and research grants. So you can't call it an independently conducted study, I don't think. Now, there was another a more recent abstract uh, published at the UG Week. This was a retrospective study of the Ovesco clip as the immediate treatment. Basically, patients who went straight to angio or patients who went uh, treated with the Ovesco clip as a retrospective analysis. They, were, uh, they had 1,426 GI bleeding cases, but only selected 128 of these. So this was a highly selected subgroup, less than 10% of the overall. Um, and they basically reported that the outcomes were similar uh, between the group that received over the scope clip versus those who underwent angiography. The only thing that was significantly different was that the in-hospital mortality was higher in the angiography group. <laughs> I don't think that's understandable. GI bleeding, you know, there are times when the, the blood is coming so thick and fast that you, you know, let's let's just send this patient for angiography. And uh, and I think this may have been what happened here. <laughs> I guess this is the problem with a retrospective study. It's uh, difficult to know why the decisions were made. Now, on the topic of uh, GI bleeding, I was reminded of the Catherine Oakland's Oakland score. It was published in GUT last year, and uh, it formed the basis of the BSG guideline on emergency lower GI bleeding. Uh, to remind you, the guideline triages patients with a stable lower GI bleeding, that's patient with a shock index above 1, into Oakland high and Oakland low risk bleeding. A low Oakland score patient would, for example, be a 70-year-old lady with a blood on PR but with a normal heart rate and no hypertension and a normal hemoglobin. A high Oakland score patient should, according to this BSG guideline, which I had probably forgotten, be offered an emergency colonoscopy on the next available list. However, the most patients, something like 95% of patients with a lower GI bleed, will stop bleeding on their own, spontaneously. As a rule of thumb, about a third will re-bleed once, and about half of these will re-bleed a third time. In my experience, furthermore, it's usually impossible for these elderly frail patients to take sufficient prep for the colonoscopy to actually be worthwhile. Now, the BSG guideline do admit that there is no evidence for benefit in colonoscopy in patients with lower GI bleeding. Now, of course, it's hard to deny it because even a meta-analysis of the four randomized uh, trials conducted on this topic concluded that there is no benefit in mortality, in diagnostic yield, in primary hemostatic intervention, or any endoscopic intervention between patients offered early colonoscopy that's within 24 hours of admission, or elective colonoscopy, even in the most severe cases of lower GI bleeding. I think this is the reason why I promptly forgot about this score. 
Now, what was new on the topic of antithrombotics? Well, we were reminded of the BRIDGE trial from uh, New England Journal of Medicine in 2015, which basically showed that uh, the risk of stroke in patients with atrial fibrillation was uh, the same, whether you offered bridging low molecular weight heparin or not. But of course, these were CHAD2 score patients, so they were very low risk of, uh, of, of a stroke in the first place. Um, now, Yutaka Saito from the National Cancer Center in Tokyo suggested that uh, patients with CHAD2 scores above 2, it may actually be easier and cheaper to simply change the patient from warfarin to a DOAC rather than to go through the rigmarole of uh, low molecular weight heparin with injection needles and stuff like that. After all, DOAC only needs 48 hours to leave the system and may be restarted sooner because if there is a late bleed, you just simply stop the tablet rather than um, worry about reversing the, uh, the warfarin, etc. He also advised that there's no need to stop antithrombotic therapy for cold snaring because the risk of a late bleeding was tiny, and he quoted two such cases in 429 cold snare polypectomies in it at the National Cancer Center. Now, back of the fag packet calculation tells me that in the UK, we would have to spend about £6,000 on clips to prevent one late bleed uh, after cold snaring. But in Japan, the clips only cost £7. So you would only have to spend about £1,400 to prevent one case of late bleeding. I think that would be cost effective and, and worthwhile in Japan, uh, particularly of course if the patient is on any antithrombotic medication when I would certainly put a clip on afterwards. Uh, did you know by the way that in Japan patients are admitted before their EMR or ESD or whatever uh, and then kept in hospital for three or four days afterwards? And, uh, and of course, by reducing the risk of late bleeding using clips, J Japan could, I think, save a lot of money by discharging these patients early. Now, there were a lot of abstracts on the topic of therapeutics and endoscopy, as you would expect, I guess. Um, in 2006, there was a consensus guideline published by the American Society of uh, GI Endoscopy on the management of uh, ampullary adenomas. Now, the UEG provided us with an update from another international consensus group. Uh, it was uncontroversial stuff apart from one thing that worries me a little bit. They, they basically recommended that a judenal adenoma may be uh, removed provided that an EUS doesn't see it extending more than 10 millimeters into the CBD. Now the EUS scope with a balloon inflator actually compresses the, the adenoma of course. So if a compressed and squished adenoma is seen to extend 10 millimeter into the CBD, that's a long way up. Um, there was a large multicenter prospective study published in endoscopy six years ago, which reported on 93 papillectomies, and they concluded that any introductal invasion is probably a contraindication. But, you know, there's been a couple of studies uh, older than uh, before 2014, which reported that intraductal extension of less than 10 millimeters, uh, as seen on ultrasound, may be successfully resected by endoscopic papillectomy. The problem though is a positive deep margin and an underlying carcinoma can be difficult to confirm in as superficial biopsies in up to a third of cases doesn't actually reveal the true diagnosis. Worrying signs of an ampullary cancer include uh, the nodule being two centimeter or larger in size, patients being 
65 years or older, jaundice or a dilated CBD, uh, high-grade dysplasia on the biopsies, of course, uh, or if the patient develops a local recurrence after your papillectomy. But then, of course, you should have the histology uh, in your in your uh, ampelectomy specimen. Um, talking of uh, papillectomies in Leeds, we quote an overall 30% uh, risk of some complication, and, and I, I personally specify the following hazards, up to 20% risk of acute pancreatitis, which can happen for up to a couple of months after the procedure, surprisingly, up to uh, a 20% risk of late bleeding, up to 20% risk of ascending cholangitis, uh, up to 5% risk of a perforation, which may well require emergency surgery, uh, up to 5% risk of a papillary stenosis causing late jaundice, and one in, in 100 to 200 risk of death. Now again on the topic of uh, therapeutics, we all know that in the colorectum, having removed a malignant polyp, almost always send the patient for recommend surgery afterwards, but uh, usually there is nothing in the colorectum specimen. There was a meta-analysis of 71 studies uh, mentioned on the, at the UEG week. Basically, 5,167 endoscopically treated T1, i.e. early colorectal cancer, were reported upon. The Surprisingly, the local recurrence rate after a malignant polyp being removed like that was only 1.6%, which of course is much better than after a normal polypectomy made me think though that uh, presumably all these studies were very highly selected retrospective studies of course now the the risk of the patient develop uh, metastatic disease afterwards a local nodal metastasis was also 1.6 percent usually within five years of resection of course um, now whether the polyp was polypoid or flat removed as a single fragment or uh, in a piecemeal resection did influence the risk of recurrence, but the most important was histology. Patients with what the, the, the study authors called high-risk histological features had a 7% risk of uh, lymph node disease afterwards. Oddly enough, the authors couldn't come up with a, an agreed definition what they what, what actually was the histological high risk of a T1 cancer. We know from before that uh, lymphovascular invasion, poor differentiation, positive margins are all are all bad things. Well, I guess if you're looking at 71 studies, there might very well be 71 different definitions of a, of of bad histological features. Tumor budding, for example, often mentioned in Japan, but I, I get the impression that histopathologists here in the in uh, in the West don't really like uh, to comment on tumor budding. What is a bud? Is it two cells, 20 cells, or 200 cells? I guess there are some definitions lacking there. We also had an update, a therapeutic update on uh, Barrett's. Uh, um, it was an update from the Dutch Barrett Expert Center Group, presented by Dr. Nieuwenhuis, uh, abstract 0154, basically reported on 120 patients who had been found to have cancer within the Barrett's EMR specimen. As expected, 55 patients who had a superficially invasive cancer, uh, not invading any deeper than half a millimeter into the submucosa, but with no bad histological features, no lymphovascular invasion, poor differentiation, anything like that. Group of 50, 55 patients, there was only one who developed nodal disease on follow-up. The surprise finding for, from this study was that, uh, which is ongoing by the way, is that 6 out of 27 patients who had 
intermucosal Barrett's cancer, but with lymphovascular invasion, developed nodal disease. Lymphovascular invasion is clearly a bad thing. And in the subsequent discussion uh, after the presentation, the, there was agreement that lymphovascular invasion is, is probably far more concerning than, for example, poor differentiation in the specimen. In Holland, they're launching the, the prospective preferred study to look more closely at the, at these the Barrett's cancer resected endoscopically to try to narrow down which patients need to go on to have surgery afterwards. Now, we had a little plea from a histopathologist that uh, if you think that a polyp might be malignant, that it will probably be referred back to you for an endoscopic attempted resection, please don't take samples easily said than done I think. Uh, this is because the inflammation induced by the samples can mimic invasive cancer and even lymphovascular invasion although the polyp may actually only be harboring high-grade dysplasia. I didn't realize that biopsies could wreak such havoc uh, with the histology. The histopathologist emphasized that it, it polyp was going to be removed surgically it didn't matter please take biopsies which I think we relieved the surgeons I don't think they would like to do a colectomy without having some sort of inkling what what actually they are resecting and then finally Professor Messman outlined a meta-analysis of six studies of Barris cryotherapy basically it reported a failure rate of about 30 percent which of course is very similar to the early RFA studies this is failure to to completely cure the patients of Barrett's, of course, which gets better as the experience builds. There was a stricture rate of 5% only, which is probably better than RFA. And on the upside, the kit was probably cheaper than RFA, and there was a considerably less pain afterwards than the patients suffered with RFA. In Leeds, we prescribe oxeticaine and antacid, something the radiotherapy boys give after SFG radiotherapy, which helps a great deal. Now, the final big topic was, of course, screening and surveillance. Marco Dinis Ribeiro from Porto reminded us about the MAPS guidelines. He quoted several papers to support his contention that the, the diagnosis of intestinal metaplasia can actually be made nowadays endoscopically without the need for histology. Of course, it's the image enhancement with narrowband imaging or blue light imaging etc which increases the endoscopic detection rate from quite a poor 50% to close to 90%. Gastric atrophy on the other hand remains quite difficult to diagnose both endoscopically and histologically. The p-value is pretty bad even between histopathologists. Now whether this actually holds true for a busy normal jobbing endoscopy list outside of specialist centers has yet been proven of course. Then we were reminded of a couple of old Dutch studies which looked at the risk of progression in Barrett's low-grade dysplasia. These reported quite a high patient progression risk to around 10% a year. Now, <laughs> of course, this depends entirely on the histopathologist. They're cautious, so will find lots of low-grade dysplasia, and your unit will then find that these patients rarely develop anything further. Conversely, if you've got a histopathologist which is conservative, don't find many cases of low-grade dysplasia, find that these few that do have the low-grade dysplasia have a very high likelihood progressing to cancer. Now, for this reason, I don't quite agree with the BSG recommendation that Barrett's patients with low-grade dysplasia should all be offered RFA. Many of these patients, in uh, my view, are old and frail, and stopping their 
dual antiplatelet therapy in perhaps an eight-year-old who, who was started on these antithrombotics after a stroke or a heart attack just to, to treat the low-grade dysplasia with several cycles of RFA may not actually end up benefiting these patients. You need to have the slice reviewed by a specialist, of course, but what does that actually mean? Um, and of course it is difficult. Uh, there was another abstract presented at the UG week uh, in which uh, three specialist pathologists reviewed the diagnosis of 155 Barrett's patients in one of the uh, publications by Dewitz. And the histopathologist couldn't agree in about half the cases as to whether this was uh, low-grade dysplasia or not. So it clearly is tricky. Now, Marco Bruno at the Erasmus Medical Center in Rotterdam discussed surveillance in patients with a higher than average risk of developing pancreatic cancer. This could be patients with new onset diabetes, uh, pancreatic cysts in on imaging, or perhaps a genetic syndrome, Pugiego syndrome or something. Uh, sadly, he concluded there was absolutely no evidence that surveillance saves lives. Now, you may have come across uh, hereditary gastric cancer. Uh, of course, you will, you'll suspect this if a patient develops a diffuse type gastric cancer, especially at a young age before the age of 40. Uh, perhaps if the family history, two family members or more, has got diffuse type gastric cancer. Uh, diffuse lobular breast cancer seem to be related to, to this condition, as does uh, uh, having a cleft lip or a cleft palate. Of course, the, the, the most common reason for thinking of inherited gastric cancer is because the patient's got uh, Pugiego syndrome or juvenile polyposis. There isn't a strong link, by the way, with FAP and gastric cancer. The risk is only marginally increased. Now, the other condition, of course, is the rare Egaderin mutation. I remember such a patient in Leeds. He uh, was of Indian extraction and uh, his, his brother had gastric cancer had underwent surgery but he decided against it he was at uh, university at the time so he kept him under surveillance for a couple of years but then he changed his mind and went for surgery and in the gastrectomy specimen nine small diffuse type cancer foci were found which we haven't noticed at endoscopy screening for this reason i was always been a bit anxious about the bsg guidelines recommending that these patients should be screened in a, in a specialist center and uh, we need to take the what's called the Cambridge-style uh, biopsies of at least 30 samples taken throughout the stomach and, of course, targeted also um, suspicious lesions. Now, of course, taking 30 random gastric biopsies is a somewhat tedious and uh, difficult job. Um, for this reason, I was, uh, I was intrigued to see this abstract uh, uh, presented at the UG week where, they, where the Fallout 51 confirmed mutation carriers. And... If you, if you exclude the cases when the endoscopist saw nothing, but the histopathologist spotted the cancer in one of the up to 70 biopsies taken, the miss rate of endoscopy was 73%. In fact, the overall miss rate was something like 50% when you added the, the biopsies and the endoscopic diagnosis together. Now, the authors concluded that uh, they either needed to take about 1,700 biopsies per surveillance examination or sadly conclude that surveillance simply doesn't work in this group. Talking of surveillance in inherited cancer syndromes, you, you may know that there is a European database with uh, 1,942 Lynch syndrome mutation carriers. Uh, three years ago we had an update on this uh, published in GUT and uh, they reported it on the cumulative risk of bowel cancer. 
the risk of having been diagnosed with um, colorectal cancer by the age of 70 was 46% if you had the worst mutation. And of course, you know that the worst mutation is in the MLH1 gene followed by MSH2, MSH6, and uh, least bad is PMS2. Authors concluded that uh, colorectal cancer occurred very frequently despite endoscopic surveillance. Now, we had another study from, I, don't, I think it's a different cohort of uh, uh, Lynch patients. It was um, a multi-center Spanish study. It was published as the abstract, or presented rather, as the abstract OP102. They reported on 893 mutation carriers who had undergone a total of 4,000 surveillance colonoscopies over a five-year period. Now, out of these 893 Lynch syndrome patients, 48 developed cancer, that's 5%, and the post-colonoscopy colorectal cancer rate was 8% which wasn't that bad, I don't think. Oddly enough, though, the normal colonoscopy quality indicators didn't seem to correlate at all with the risk of the patient developing cancer afterwards. And that doesn't make any sense. You would have thought that the procedures carried out by the, so to speak, best colonoscopies with the best adenoma detection rate, etc., would be less likely than average to develop cancer. But that wasn't the case. Now, the only thing that the group found did correlate with the risk of cancer was if the surveillance interval was any longer than two years. Fortunately, the international consensus in Lynch syndrome mutation carries is that we should offer surveillance every two years. In the discussion, the usual complaint popped up when surveillance was found to be wanting that we, we need to do it more often. Uh, only specialists should do it. Only the best endoscopes should be used. And the bowel cleansing need to be brilliant. Maybe the be the, only the specialist centers should do it, etc. Now, thank you for listening, and I hope that you have uh, enjoyed this podcast. Next week, uh, Mons uh, from Birmingham is going to give us a more detailed review of artificial intelligence in endoscopy. Bye for now.